Hello and welcome to Maths on the Move, the podcast from plus.maths.org. I'm Rachel Thomas. And I'm Marianne Freiberger. We're doing a special last episode for the year just to go through our favourite things that we've covered over the last year have a bit of a look back and also to think about what's coming in the new year. Um, Marianne, what's been one of your favourite things that you've covered over the last year on PLUS? Well, one of the things I like most, which we both worked on, was the anniversary of the announcement of the proof of Fermat's last theorem. Fermat's last theorem, people might remember, is a, was a problem in number theory and it was an open problem for about 300, 400 years. It was posed by Pierre de Fermat and it was proved um, very famously by Andrew Wiles in 1993. So this year was the 30th anniversary of the announcement of the proof. And Andrew Wiles is a very famous mathematician because of that proof. And he announced his proof at the Isaac Newton Institute in Cambridge with who we collaborate. So we had this great opportunity to go to Oxford to visit and interview Andrew Wiles together with Dan Aspel from the Newton Institute. And it was fantastic, because I'd never met Wiles before. He's a lovely person to talk to, and he told us some interesting things about the maths. It was, I mean, yeah, it was really great to meet him. Um, So he told us a lot about his motivation and how he first became aware of the problem of Fermat's last theorem. Um, which is this very simple problem. If you have, if you think of a right-angled triangle and you have the sides around the right angle at A and B and your um, hypotenuse, the slope side, is C, then A squared plus B squared equals C squared, that famous Pythagorean theorem. And Fermat's last theorem says that for any whole numbers, there's no numbers A, B and C such that A to the N plus B to the N equals C to N for any numbers greater than two. That's right. For any n greater than two. For any n <laughs> greater than two. And so um, so it's one of those brilliant number theory problems that are simple to state but turned out to be so difficult to prove. And Wiles came across this looking at maths books in the library when he was very young, when he was about 10, I think. And then he worked on it over the years. and the, In I, secret. In secret, mm. yeah, because if you tell someone you're working on such a famous or infamous problem then he said people will bother you so he didn't tell anyone and then he solved it but what was fascinating is he solved it by developing some really exciting new mathematics so he told us about that you can listen to a podcast interview with him but the thing that made it really special was not only meeting Andrew Wiles and talking to him but also then speaking to Jack Thorne a researcher here in Cambridge who has gone on to work on the mathematics of the area that um, Andrew Wiles developed in his proof of Fermat's last theorem. And also there was this great chance to talk to our colleague Tom Kerner, who was there when Wiles announced it. And it's just people forget that mathematics is incredibly exciting when you're on the cutting edge. And so Tom had told us um, previously that he uh, Andrew Wiles was at the Isaac Newton Institute for a research program. Nobody knew initially that he was announcing a proof of Fermat's last theorem. But gradually, over the three days that he was giving lectures, 
this excitement began to build and Tom describes asking someone what's going on should I come yeah he said will I regret not going to the lecture and the person said yes and so the final lecture I think it was standing room only and Wiles announced his proof you can listen to the podcast and read the article to find out the details and then turned around and said I think I'll stop there and apparently you know huge applause happened so that was a really exciting Mm. kind of event yeah and actually the proof wasn't quite complete there was a mistake in it but Andrew Wiles with Richard Taylor they fixed it within a year and perhaps we should say that one of the reasons the theorem or the supposed theorem was so exciting to people was that Fermat had written in the margin of his maths book at the time that he had a marvellous proof for his assertion, which the margin was too small to contain. So obviously then people went off and tried to find this marvellous proof for the 400 years or whatever it took until Andrew Wells did. So yeah, that was exciting. That was an old, a 30th anniversary of an old result, famous result. But then you also covered this really very new announcement of a new result in mathematics, and that was um, the telescope conjecture. Yeah, that was really exciting. So again, this was announced during a two-week conference organized by the Newton Institute that was part of a bigger research program at the Newton Institute. And the, it, the announcement was at the uh, satellite program at the University of Oxford. Of Oxford, exactly, which is where Andrew Wiles is as well. And it's in an area of pure mathematics. Broadly speaking, it's topology. Um, more specifically, it's homotopy theory. And it's all about... So topology is all about looking at the nature of shapes without paying any attention to exact measures like length and angle. So famously, people always give this example that like a round sphere is topologically the same as a deflated football because, you know, the deflated football isn't perfectly round, but you can deform it into a sphere without breaking or cutting or So tearing. if you can bend or stretch it, then it's topologically the same, but if you have to break or tear it, then, then it's, it's not. not. Yeah. So, and again, like people often quote, coffee cup and a donut are the same because they're basically defined by this one hole they have. And this goes further. So for, for many, many types of surfaces, what defines them topologically is the number of holes. So anything with one hole is equivalent topologically. Anything with two holes is, or three holes, and so on. Um, and then the telescope conjecture is to do with figuring out, with looking for higher dimensional holes in higher dimensional spheres. So you can read all of this on PLUS by searching telescope conjecture on plus.maths.org. I'm not going to go into the details. But it is about looking for higher dimensional holes in higher dimensional spheres. In the 1980s, a person called Douglas Ravenel suggested a way in which this, this whole world of spheres with holes could be understood. And these four early career researchers, Robert Berklund, Jeremy Hahn, Ishan Levy and Thomas Schlank, they disproved the telescope conjecture. So it's not true. So this... Um, method for understanding these things surrounding holes in spheres they, that Ravenel suggests that they don't work in that way. But as, it oft, as is often the case within mathematics, even if you sh- show that something doesn't work or that something is more complicated than you thought, it always opens up new questions. So now there's a whole new world of questions that homotopy theories, theorists can dive into. And again, it was just such a nice and exciting moment. Um, and, and two of the researchers who 
disprove the telescope conductor talk to us. And they said how lovely it was to be at this conference with all the big people in the field in the audience um, and them announcing this result. So I, we weren't able to attend the conference in person, but we were watching the, the footage of it. And um, they announced it before each of them gave lectures. And by the fourth lecture, they'd shown that they'd disproved it. And again, you had clearly building excitement and then huge round of applause when they finished. And then what was so lovely is, as um, I can't remember whether it was Toma or Jeremy said, um, Douglas Ravenel, who proposed the conjecture, was in the audience and then he came up on stage. And there's just this, there was, when Marianne, when you interviewed them, there was just, it came across this wonderful aspect of the community of mathematics and how everyone was so excited that these people had done this work and, and it was this this collaborative nature of mathematics, both because all four of them worked on it, but also the idea that you're always building on the work of others and how exciting it is when new results happen. And also, you know, that maths was hard mm -hmm. and it was so... I remember being totally daunted by it, but by the time you'd interviewed them and written the article, it's so exciting to get a glimpse to this really sort of cutting-edge part of pure mathematics. Yes, and even though, I mean, we didn't explain the conjecture in detail, but it kind of highlights one of the things that we recently said when we gave a talk at the anniversary event of the Newton Gateway, that no matter how hard or pure or abstract mathematics, there's always something you can pull out that people can relate to. Everybody can relate to a sphere, and from, and, you know, from there you can build and you can give a gist of what hard mathematics is about. So it, so it was good evidence of our claim that no matter how hard the research is, we can find a way to write about it. And also fundamentally, it was a human story, right? It was the mm. result of, of human creativity and human intelligence and human motivation. So yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Really nice. But what, is, what has been your, one of your favourite things to cover then this year? Um, one of the things happened earlier in the year when um, the musician Ed Sheeran was in the news because he was being sued for similarities between one of his songs and a Marvin Gaye song. And um, there was a court case in America that um, Ed Sheeran won. Uh, but when we were talking about it, I was talking to my friend, Ollie Freak, who is our favourite music correspondent on Plus, and he'd written an article a number of years ago about how many melodies are there. So we did a great podcast with Ollie, where he kind of talked us through how, how hard it is to find a, a unique melody and why... And the, the constraints of working within different genres of, of music and how that impacts on the number of possible kind of combinations of chords in a sequence or, or notes in a melody. And then the other thing that Ollie did in this um, podcast is he showed uh, how you can turn clicks into notes. And it was this fantastic illustration of frequency equaling pitch. And he had these great examples um, of how you could do that, which which we might insert one here.
Yeah, this is really amazing because I am really bad at music. In, I love listening to it, but that's about it. And I've known as a mathematician, of course, I've known the connections between maths and music as in frequency and pitch and things like that. But they were always rather abstract to me. And I mean, this these examples that Oli came up with, they just suddenly made it all real. And it's I so could, concrete. Yeah, so concrete. So that was great. Yeah. And uh, and then Oli wrote us an article. So you can now, we'll put links in the episode um, notes, but there's um, he wrote an article with all of the, you can play these clips for yourself and explore how you can turn a series of clicks into a series of, notes or even chords um, of music. So that was one of my favorite things. But Rachel, you have also just recently worked on something you found really interesting. Tell us about that. Yeah, I've been working for a few months now um, covering a workshop that happened at the Isaac Newton Institute as part of a bigger research program. And it was on decarbonizing energy networks, what was called the Mathematics and Statistics for Low Carbon Energy Systems. And I initially spoke to Chris Dent, who's a professor of industrial mathematics at the University of Edinburgh. And it was just so interesting to talk to him about the challenges of... Um, of decarbonizing an energy network, particularly the electricity system, and what maths can bring to that. And so there's obviously like the physics and the engineering of the of the energy network, but also there's these mathematical problems of optimizing, which affect how you schedule when power generators um, run and how much energy they should be contributing to the network. And you have to balance that with the demands on the network. And there's a kind of this constant balancing of um, the input and outputs of an electricity system. And that was fairly well understood when you had a few, relatively few generating power stations and fairly standard um, demand, which was well understood in terms of people using it in their houses or using it in industry. But with the move to um, renewables in particular, that suddenly becomes much harder to solve those those kind of equations of those of that balancing the equations of that low carbon electricity network because you have all you have now thousands potentially millions of small renewable systems could be large scale things like solar farms or wind farms but also people individually have solar panels on their roof and things like that also, because people are able to use the energy they generate locally, like you might run your washing machine when the sun's shining and use the energy you're getting from your solar panel rather than drawing from the grid, local systems, local weather now affects the energy demands in the network. So you need maths to balance those equations, but also to predict demand in a much more complicated way. And of course, renewables are changeable all the time. You don't have wind blowing all the time or the sun shining all the time. So you've got um, a lot of uncertainty there that you have to model yeah. as well. And I mean, the, the background of all this is that the UK has pledged to decarbonize the energy system by 2035, which is not a long time from mm -hmm. now. So it's a massive challenge. I, and I was, I was, I was cheeky. Uh, at the, and then just recently I interviewed Chris and his colleague Lars Schaber, who's also from the University of Edinburgh for a podcast, um, which you can listen to, uh, we published it last week, and 
uh, and I asked them, you know, what is the chance that we could meet this target of 2035? And they said, you know, we definitely could. And, and it was a nice comparison to things like the Apollo program that you, that, you know, the, the US set this firm deadline, we will be on the moon in this many years. And then they threw the science, they threw the funding and the scientific focus onto that problem and they were. So there is a real possibility to meet these things, but you need that societal level will and focus to do that. So it was a, it was a really interesting discussion of how maths can play a role and, you know, what the challenges are. Mm. And it's interesting because it reminds me of a conversation we had with a famous climate scientist called Tim Palmer. We have a podcast with him too. Um, and he, he calls for a CERN for climate change. And by this he means that a lot could be achieved if a lot of money and a lot of collaborative effort is, is put into addressing climate change. And he says CERN because CERN is the place where the Large Hadron Collider is based, particle accelerator which is there to probe the secrets of the universe. And there's a lot of, lots of money went into that. Lots of people, power and intelligence goes into that. So this idea of if we do make a concerted effort, a lot can be achieved, but we do have to make that effort. So yeah. that's important. Yeah. So they were some of just a few of the highlights we've had of the last year of research we've been lucky enough to learn about and researchers we've been lucky enough to work with but Marianne looking forward what are you what are you looking forward to working on next well last week I attended a virtual study group on mathematics and justice a surprising <laughs> application of maths you yeah think. super interesting though I mean there were three strands of it one strand was about how do you use maths to help with the throughput because obviously there's pressure on the courts how do you use maths to 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 maybe optimize the way people flow through the system. Another strand was about the about statistics, and that was super interesting because there are um, there is quite a bit of evidence that there is bias when it comes to, for example, sentencing people. There has been the Lamy report, named after politician MP David Lamy, um, which has found evidence for racial bias within the ju judicial system. So. Um, people from ethnic minority backgrounds tend to get longer and harsher sentences. Also, there seems to be a bias in that women tend to get less harsh sentences than men. So there seems to be bias in there. And of course, um, it's very easy to, to just jump to a conclusion and say, well, judges are racist or they're sexist. But then the statistics strand, it was actually pointed out, you can't make this... Um, Conclusion: You can't draw this conclusion just so easily because there are so many confounding factors. So, for example, one confounding factor that was mentioned is that people from ethnic minority backgrounds, I'm, I'm not sure whether it was particular ethnic minority backgrounds or all of them, are less likely to plead guilty. If you don't plead guilty, you get a harsher sentence. Now, why people are less likely to plead guilty is, well, something that might be to do with racism and the lack of faith in the system, but you can't just conclude that the judge was racist because if the person hasn't pleaded guilty, well, they get a harsh sentence. So one strand of this virtual study group was about can we actually tease out um, the bias, where it comes from and where it lies. And as some people pointed out, you know, there have been studies which have uh, concluded that hungry judges give harsher sentences. So if your case uh, is heard just before lunch, that's not a good 
thing because the judge will be hungry and give you a harsh <laughs> sentence. But then again, people have uh, pointed out this is not a very robust, reliable conclusion. So there's lots to think about in that. Mm. But then there was, there's the other interesting aspect, which is there are definitely going to be calls for the use of artificial intelligence, for example, in sentencing. It's already been suggested. The problem is if you use machine learning, which is our current powerful form of artificial intelligence, to decide the length of somebody's sentence, then that machine learning algorithm will have been trained on existing data, because that's how these algorithms work. They are trained on existing data. If that existing data contains a bias, a race bias or a sex bias, then the algorithm will learn that bias. So you're going to still end up having um, biased decisions. So basically, the mathematician's tasks has been and will be to figure out whether there are ways around it. Because the argument for using algorithms in these kind of things is that precisely that they may not exhibit the prejudices that a human does. But of course, if they learn from data containing prejudice, then they will ex exhibit the same kind of prejudice. So that's a very, really fascinating mm -hmm. area. So that, um, and that virtual study group was organised by our good friend Chris Budd, who leads the Maths for DL, Maths for Deep Learning uh, research project that we're lucky enough to collaborate on. So um, looking forward to finding out what you, um, how you cover that study group, but also working with other Maths for DL researchers over the, over the next year as well. What are you looking forward to? Um, so I, I'm about to head off for Christmas holidays, but when I get back, one of the first things I'll be doing is going to an event um, run by the Juniper Research Network, who we've been working with for a few years now. And it's an event run at the University of Oxford, and it's about a workshop linking climate change with epidemics. Um, which you might be surprised about. Um, we spoke to a Juniper researcher earlier this year who told us about how climate change means, for example, mosquitoes can live in parts of the world where they didn't before, which means that diseases that are carried by mosquitoes are now appearing in parts of the world, such as Northern Europe, that they weren't before. And there's other aspects of um, disease modelling and climate change, which it's important to explore. So I'm really looking forward to finding out more at that event and um, working with Juniper researchers more over the coming year. Yeah, that sounds like it's going to be really interesting. And working with the Juniper people is always a lot of fun as well. Um, so yeah, so this was all stuff that we've covered with articles and podcasts, but we, are, we do quite a lot of other stuff, like behind the scenes as well. Yeah, I think one of the most exciting things that's been happening, besides learning about, you know, really interesting research, has been the work we've been doing on trying to improve communication of mathematical science research more generally. And that started off with speaking at an event run by the Newton Gateway in January, which was communicating mathematics for the public, which had lots of people who worked uh, in, say, Office for National Statistics or researchers on um, who were involved in the pandemic or people involved in climate change research um, about how you communicate mathematics. That's really important for policy and for public health and for um, public good, really, and the different ways of communicating that. So we, that was a great start to the year, and we've sort of been building on that ever since. Um, we've written a 
how to we've written a writing guide which helps anyone at any stage of the writing process to um, with some tips and um, guidelines for how to write clearly about anything but particularly about mathematics and uh, we've really been exploring this year ways in which we can extend the work we do and how we can work collaboratively with other communicators in this area to improve the communication of mathematical research in all places and in all ways so that's an exciting thing to be carrying on with next year as well yeah and it's always relevant i mean covid has shown us the importance of people being able to understand some basic maths ideas but it's so relevant to artificial intelligence mm. and um, to climate science to all of it so so yeah that's a really exciting area yeah so the next we've had a great 2023 Uh, and um, we're looking forward to 2024 but we want to wish everyone um, all the best for the year and happy new year and we should head off to have our annual plus christmas kebab yay <laughs> bye see you in 2024